0: Hey, Jesse, tell Brad about the electronics markets in China, please. I need to hear about the Shenzhen markets. So sadly, they appear to be like, well, they may or may not be dying out, but they've been moving around some of they've been getting every time I've been there, more and more of the buildings have been getting renovated. The place you used to be able to get the fake iPhones became a perfume market. (laughs) Um, It's nuts.
1: But they're like multi-story, essentially like aisles and aisles and aisles of booths, right?
0: It is a it is a district of Shenzhen. Um, it's the it's the Wajang Bay and Wajian Nan. So um, Wajian Road, north and south. Um, there is literally a shopping mall full of iPhone cases. And each time you go, each time I've gone, there have been different trendy things. Okay. So, so we had. Uh, I would usually have a day or two to kill in Shenzhen, and I was usually kind of bummed out with the old factory, and so. At some point, I tweeted, "Hey, would anyone want to give me fifty bucks and I'll send you some random crap from Shenzhen?" And got enough takers that we I put a a random box of crap from Shenzhen for fifty dollars on our Shopify storefront. It <laughs> I limited it to twenty, and I sold it. Said it was only going to be shipped to the states because I didn't want a deal, and it sold out in a couple of hours. The second time around, we I think we limited it to hundred, and it sold out in minutes. But that first box, everybody got a tiny little drone. Everybody got a crazy cable that was both a USB, USB, a micro USB and a lightning cable um, in the same connector. I showed it to a friend at Apple and he basically melted. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And And everybody got a fidget spinner. Everybody got a fidget spinner like two weeks before they broke here.
1: I, I remember the year that we talked about this and and I was like, these fidgets, but this is so stupid. Nobody's ever gonna do this. And meanwhile, uh, our friend Zach, who's inventable Zach was was routing out fidget spinners for anybody who wanted them in another room at the event we were at. Um, so so like but but it's also it's also really like the so I love watching videos of people going to these, I mean, most of them are, like you said, probably from like
0: 2015 at this point. I think. There like there's there's plenty of current I mean, there is plenty of current content. There are, I mean, you know, there are there's a whole mall of tiny little iPhone and other phone repair shops. Uh I have had the privilege of getting to wander around Wajan Nan on the other side of the road with Scotty from Strange Parts. Um, Scotty, you may know, is the guy who built his own iPhone, who added a headphone jack back to a lightning-only iPhone. Um, <laughs> who's been, he's, he's done all kinds of amazing stuff. But he took me on a tour of sort of his favorite vendors, like the woman who would sell unpopulated iPhone logic boards or wow. the – The place you could buy a strip of like a dozen A8 chips, like iPhone core chips. Like talking to Apple friends, you cannot actually use these things without being able to fuse them with Apple-only tooling, but they clearly fell off the back of a truck somewhere. (laughs) Um, most, Most of these markets, they've got lots and lots of stuff out everywhere. You can touch things. And then there's the one market where you go up. And there is basically nothing out. There are some price lists on shelves, and everybody has a big safe, and that's the place you can buy used iPads. And it is not a place for tourists. It is a place for people to go buy hardware. Um, it's like a you know, do not take pictures, be respectful. It is in most in most of the markets, haggling is normal. Um, in this market, there is no haggling. If, you're ha- if you try to haggle, they basically know that you're a tourist. Wow. Uh, in a lot of the markets, they, you know, it, these are not really all, mostly there for individual sale. They're mostly wholesale. Everybody here has a Taobao shop and an, and an Ali and an AliExpress shop. Uh, everybody I know who lives in Shenzhen has stories of buying something on Taobao and having it show up ten minutes later because the shop they ordered it from on the internet is was like three doors down. <laughs> but you know, you, you would say, "I, I want to buy one," and they're like, "No, don't want to sell one." And we're like. But if you go and say, how much does it cost to buy 50? <laughs> okay. Can I buy a sample? Everybody loves that. Um, yeah, of course. You know, course. like don't don't be a dick about it, but that's
1: what's the weirdest best thing? Like, do you have anything that you use all the time that came came from there, Jesse? Still?
0: Um the the force tester that I use to test how the the force curves on a key switch is something that is a Chinese clone of a thousand dollar Japanese item that I bought for about a hundred bucks in those markets it's sitting on my desk <laughs> hey, if uh, it works yeah no it's great it's great um the serial protocol it speaks is a little bit weird but it's a nor it's a serial protocol that I can read um, I had to reverse engineer it but that was not a not a huge thing um
2: sounds like a pretty good score so was it safe to assume you passed on the loose strip
0: of a8s? Um, I did pass on the strip of AIDS, okay. but I did buy the logic board because okay. that was just cool. Yeah. Um, I I have a couple of fake iPhones. One was a fake iPhone Mini that was an inch and a half tall. Um, <laughs> I try. <laughs> it's a Mini iPhone Mini. Yeah, and I like this. This was sorry. This was a 2016 era iPhone Mini when that wasn't a thing. Um, I bought it. I tried to plug in a. I tried to plug in a micro USB cable to charge it. It wasn't charging, and I looked a little, a little closer and I realized it's because it had a lightning port. Of course. I was in. Of course, it did. I was in. I was in Shenzhen shortly after the iPhone 10 launched, and I went into the Mingtong Digital Plaza, where you where fake, where you would buy your fake iPhones. And I wandered around for a while, and I found a place that had fake iPhone 10s, and start talking to them and say like, I want to buy one of these, and they talk to me for a while about it and say okay I'll buy that one and they said no 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 you you don't want that one you want the one that has the good display also it reports itself as having twice as much storage <laughs> I'm like twice as much storage like, yes it, it both of them only have 16 but that one reports 128 instead of 64. <laughs> um, they had iPhone 10s from three different vendors uh, with three different fake versions of iOS and um, the one I the one I bought, um, I brought home and I showed it to a friend who's an engineer for Apple, and he promptly opens up System Preferences and starts looking at what it reports as build its build number, and he's like, "So I know this. You know, you can't actually tell it's Android until you get a little bit deep in, um, at least in most of the apps." And he's like, "The build number is correctly formed, but this is a build from next year." <laughs> Um, It's um, at the time they even had the, what was then the new app store. Um, And it was, it was a fake Apple app store and it had clearly been back uh, translated, back translated from Chinese because it said in giant bold letters, where is my apps? (laughs) Listen, I've heard Shenzhen is
2: kind of a magical electronics wonderland, but I really wasn't expecting iPhones from the future.
1: Welcome to Brad and Will Made a Tech Pod. I'm Will. I'm Brad. And today we're joined by a very special guest, uh, Jesse Vincent of Keyboardio is joining us today to talk about, well, I mean, mechanical keyboards, making stuff, Chinese electronic markets. Uh, what else? Anything? Any? I feel like that's that's a good, it's a good, a good smattering. Sounds good to me. I can't see a shrug, Jesse. Go. <laughs> uh, anyway. Hey, I'm Jesse. Nice to meet you, everybody. <laughs> Uh, it's, thank you so much for coming on, Jesse. I I have um I have used your keyboards for several years now. I'm a I'm a fan, uh and and you have a Kickstarter going right now for the latest version of your mechanical ergonomic keyboard, which we'll get to in a little bit, I guess. But but I kind of want to start like, what's your what's your? You've been doing this for a long time now. I'm kind of curious how you got started making like like as a like I don't want to say artisan keyboards because they're, they're they're they, they like they're like small batch keyboards. They're awesome. I love them and they're very cool and they're special.
2: And I mean, there's wood in there. I think it's okay to say artisan.
0: Yeah, okay. I mean, our, our goal, of course, is that they should be large batch keyboards. But <laughs> this did very much start off as a, a hobby project. I I had spent a career in software. I did um, spent time being responsible for Perl. I used to make an email client for Android. I had had a SaaS startup that I'd been working on that cratered for very reasonable reasons, <laughs> and I swore it swore that I was gonna take a year off to screw around. And about six months in, I realized that there were folks on the internet who were making their own keyboards, and I've had bad risks my whole life, and that seemed like a lot of fun. And this, I figured-
1: This was like know, 2014, probably?
0: 2013? This was like 2012, I think. Okay. This was a while back. Um, it was before keyboards were cool, you know. Uh, <laughs> no, we 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 totally took took a little too long to get our first thing out, and and keyboards got hip before we launched the first keyboard. But this was only intended to be a hobby project for a single month to make a single keyboard for myself. Uh, we, fa- as I I say this kind of often, we failed thousands and thousands of times over <laughs> um, in the best possible way, but. That first keyboard that I made for myself, it was something like 40 hours of soldering because I hadn't soldered since I was eight and had no idea what I was doing. Um, (laughs) One of the first mistakes I made is that I soldered all of the diodes in series rather than in parallel. Um, You know, it's like I learned. hold on. What happens when you do that? Does that mean that one press hits every key on the keyboard? uh, It just doesn't work so well. Okay, Um, And also I was doing all of this freehand with no circuit board because at the time it seemed like it would be scary to make circuit boards and it would be easier to just have a big old mess of wires. Uh, I've been forbidden to ever make a keyboard like that again. Um, But these days I know how to design a reasonably simple circuit board and there are plenty of suppliers that'll let us make them for cheap. But anyway, this was supposed to be a one month hobby project. um, And that was like Dear god possibly 9 years ago now.
1: So it's it's really funny cuz I've had I like I, in my ancient history when I was at Maximum PC I was the keyboard and mouse guy for a long time. And there was a moment when the Microsoft Natural Comfort the the you know the forward tilt uh ne- when the negative angle I guess is the is what is what the, uh, you, the everybody mm-hmm. calls it now um keyboard came out I was like oh this is really cool but it was a membrane keyboard and it was like, they were, the price was right. They were like 25 to 50 bucks or something like that. Uh, And, and that keyboard solved a lot of my wrist problems. And I remember going to Logitech and Microsoft and the people that were making gaming keyboards at the time. It's like, Hey, why is nobody making an ergonomic gaming keyboard? And they laughed at me and they were like, it's because we like to sell products. You know, we we're not (laughs) doing that. And then a few years later, mechanical keyboards started taking off and I remember talking to Logitech and saying, hey, why aren't you all doing a mechanical keyboard? And they're like, well, if we made a mechanical keyboard, we would absorb the entire Cherry switch production capability for the planet on, on one product. And I was like, well, that's a little bit, that, I mean, that that's kind of a flex, but okay. That sounds this right. This was in probably 2011. That's and correct. And
0: now
1: everybody's doing, you know, well, everybody's doing mechanical keyboards. They're all using pretty standard switches for the most part now, or at least have that as an option. And the world has turned turned kind of your way in in a lot of ways
0: it it has. So the Microsoft natural series are amazing. They are the I mean, I typed on one for five plus years or rather I typed on a long series of them. I had one in my backpack at all times. I I was that dude at the conference who had the (laughs) Microsoft natural keyboard balanced in his lap um, because it was the only way my wrist could not would not hurt. Yeah. One of the problems with uh, the Natural Elite, sort of the, the white one that was sort of the b- best-known, longest-lasting longest, lasted, longest lasting model, is that its traces melted in the rain. It was during the era in which you can imagine a Microsoft would make a keyboard that would melt in the rain. Uh, and well, hold on, what do you mean, melted in the rain? I don't know. I this. mean that if it got wet, it was ruined forever. Oh, wow. I bought them in five packs. <laughs> literally okay. interesting um they like microsoft made a small bu- a small business home office five pack uh, sku of that keyboard wow uh but 2012 2013 is right around when we started looking at manufacturing mechanical keyboards uh i remember trying to source cherry switches and it was hard i later talked to uh the regional sales director for cherry said like look what happened is the bottom fell out of the mechanical keyboard market, sort of, when you know a, f- a good few years back, and the company got rid of most of its uh, most of its key switch making machinery because no one was buying them, and those are each individually million dollar machines because cherry switches continue to be made only in Germany. Yeah, and so they're just there. Really, was not. Inventory I, that that flex from Logitech doesn't actually sound like it was a flex. Uh, it's I remember when we were designing the Model One, we had intended to use Cherry switches, and we approached uh, Cherry's Asia reseller, who told us that they could get us enough switches for a thousand keyboards at a reasonable price by skimming them off some other larger orders, and that they could guarantee that in you know a eight or 12 week lead. And that, you know, past that, it might be hard, but they could do that. And we were already going to make more than a thousand keyboards. And so it was the realization that there just was not availability of switches, even from somebody who wanted to help us. Wow! And that led us down a rabbit hole. That, that whole world was completely changed. What caused it to change is that Cherry's patents expired. And the first couple generations of clone switches from China were, well, garbage is the easy way to describe them. <laughs> um, I actually went went into Kaihua with their brown switch and Cherry's brown switch, and I said, like, look, these feel different. I, and the salesperson went and got an engineer, and the engineer explained that they're supposed to feel different. Their switch has, you know, 10% longer life. So that's great. You know, would you be interested? Could you make something that feels like the cherry switches? And at the time, they said, like, look, our boss wants to make our own products, not switches that feel like anybody else's, and they don't really want to do custom work. Now, that's all changed. Well,
1: yeah, I was going to say, now there's, like, switch proliferation. There's five different new switches that come out a week, it seems like, some weeks.
0: It's, it's nuts. I mean, I have... I have these board, uh, basically. I have switch testers with a couple of hundred different switch variants on them, and this is only the stock switches from various manufacturers. So I have a you know a line of twenty different red switches from they're all supposed to feel the same, a line of twenty different brown switches that are all supposed to feel the same. Wow, and they're all varying qualities and a varying feels. But now there's this huge proliferation of switches being. Designed by hobbyists and either commissioning Kaiwa or Gatoron or Durac or one of a couple other switch fa- switch factories to make a variant where it's make this piece out of this excuse me make this piece out of this material make this piece out of that material the top needs to be yellow the bottom needs to be dayglow purple um <laughs> and there's a lot of like part of part of my problem with this is. How much these switches get sold for because if you're buying direct from the factory and are a chinese factory customer you are probably not paying more than 15 cents 15 cents us a switch yeah and these switches sometimes get sold for upwards of a dollar each
1: yeah well I, I mean it's it's weird because like once i realized that i could buy switches from aliexpress it kind of changed my relationship with switches mm-hmm. um It's a mixed bag. Like sometimes you'll get a bag and like (laughs) quite literally, literally it's a mix. Yeah. Literally it's a mixed bag, Brad. It's like, there'll be 15 bad switches in a back of bag of 60 or 80 or whatever. Um,
0: That's fast. That's suggesting to me that somebody's buying rejects.
1: I I mean, that's
0: all I can assume because, but they're also so cheap. I don't care. Like it works out. Um, So what's funny is if you look at like the, um, you know, major switch resellers, Shopify site, Mm -hmm. Their AliExpress site and their Taobao site, Uh, Taobao being the essentially Chinese AliExpress for the Chinese market. The -hmm. pricing just drops and drops and drops (laughs) as it goes from the fancy (laughs) Shopify site to AliExpress to domestic. Um, Yeah, it's wild.
1: It's it's such a weird it's such a weird time. Like it's been it's been really fun because like when we started tested, this was one of those like weird markets that where I was like, oh, this is cool. We should pay attention to this. And then it's just exploded. And now, like I said, like Logitech and Corsair and Razor and all the big keyboard manufacturers are making mechs now. Um, what, what's okay. So let's, let's roll back and go. I want to talk <laughs> about your, sure. like your journey with the model one. Yeah. Because like you told, you told me this story before, and it's a, it's a good story. Yeah. But you, you also learned, I think every hard lesson about hardware manufacturing, like you're one of the, your, your story is one of the reasons when people ask me if they should do a hardware startup, I'm like, no, probably not. It seems like really, it's really
0: hard. (laughs) So we definitely played on hard mode the first time around. And we didn't know we were playing on hard mode. We came into this uh, having never manufactured and shipped products before, which is good. Cause if we knew what we were getting into, we absolutely (laughs) wouldn't have gotten started. Uh, But the original plan for the keyboardio model 1 was going to be laser cut plywood and an Arduino socketed on a PC, uh, on a PCB and assembled in our living room. Brady Forrest suckered me into applying for Highway 1, which was an incubator that he was helping run at the time. <laughs> and running through that, we visited, visited Shenzhen for the first time. We got a bunch of we made a bunch of very good connections in the industry around the Bay Area we sort of learned what it looked like to make hardware and we were forced to have the discipline to try because it it's quickly became not a hobby business but when it started off i had hand assembled a couple of keyboards and had written a blog post about everything i screwed up the first time i made a keyboard this and was kind the, of,
1: this was the wires one that you talked about a minute ago right
0: yeah i mean that was like that was like one 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 little problem but On a lark, I'd added a sign-up for my mailing list, if you want to know about our keyboards, just having no idea what I was going to do with it. And then I went to bed, and the next morning it was at the top of Hacker News, and the next day it was still at the top of Hacker News, and there were a thousand people on our mailing list. And then I wrote a part two the next weekend, and that stayed at the top of Hacker News for a day. And... A couple of prototypes in, people started saying, hey, where can we buy that? These were these like laser-cut pieces of acrylic with freehand wires and all kinds of craziness. <laughs> but people wanted to buy them. And so we figured, well, we'll try to do this thing. We We made, I think, three prototypes and asked our mailing list, would anyone like to beta test this hardware that we might kickstart? And we sent out mail to that mailing list and got back something like 100 or 125 replies within 24 hours from people explaining why they needed to be the one to beta test. Uh. We had people writing poetry, prose, creepy fanfic. One dude in Hong Kong recorded a music video shot in three locations about why he needed to be a beta tester. Please tell Um, me he got it. Oh hell yes! (laughs) That's a lot of effort. Uh, Yeah, no. And then when I went to visit Shenzhen, I actually got to meet him, uh, which was which was super cool. That's awesome. Uh, Yeah, but and that was right around when we applied to Highway One, got into Highway One, ran through it, and sort of had to make it more real than laser-cut plywood and Arduino and an Arduino stuck on a circuit board.
1: It's 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 okay. So. So, so you've got to highway one, I assume at that point you started, highway one was a hardware incubator, right? Primarily. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exclusively. Um, and, and at that point you, you like got connected with designers and kind of, they, they did the thing that accelerators are supposed to do where they helped you learn the hard parts, the easy way rather than the hard way, or at least some of them.
0: They we were only the second batch. And so they were, they were still definitely feeling their way. Um, And they were an accelerator that was tied to a manufacturing company. And so there was, it was a little bit of, there was some intent that it might be a feeder for their, um, for what their, what's called low volume, high mix manufacturing, where they can make a a small number for a large company of lots of different products. That didn't, End up panning out, but like they gave us some sense of what it looked like to manufacture. But we were still kind of doing things at a different scale than everybody else. We were, you know, we were thinking low thousands production volume for that first production run. You know, if we if we got lucky, yeah. Um, there's there's a thing called the Valley of Death in hardware, and it's you know if you're making more than a hundred and less than ten thousand or less than a hundred thousand, it's going to hurt real bad because. 100, you can absolutely do at your kitchen table. 10,000, it it's worth money to have process, automation, and all that. 1,000, you can't hand-assemble, and it does not make sense to make a robot. Yeah. But a lot's changed since this conventional wisdom became conventional wisdom.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, the, the big thing seems to be that Kickstarter kind of you know, Kickstarter helped a lot of people both land in that spot and get through that spot, it seemed like. And and I'm curious how it worked out for you.
0: I mean, Kickstarter helps you get into that problem. I don't know that it helps you get out of that problem because so I we, we love Kickstarter. I mean, there's a reason why every pretty much every serious thing we've launched has been a Kickstarter. Uh, it is really convenient to be able to go to your manufacturer and say, hey, look, we have a committed orders for this number of parts and we even have the money from those customers so we can afford to pay for tooling. Yeah. Um, Even this time around some suppliers who had been very lukewarm on working with us discovered the Kickstarter about a week in, saw that we had hit our $100,000 goal in 18 minutes and gone over $300,000 in like the first day or so and became a lot more solicitous.
1: I, I was going to say, we should explain what tooling is for people who may not know. Sure. It's, it's, a, it's a manufacturing concept. And I bet a lot of people don't understand what, what yeah. you're talking
0: about. So uh, in the, you know, people ask us something as simple as the rubber feet on our keyboard. So um, somebody's, One has fallen off and a customer writes saying, hey, where can I, what's the part number for this? Where can I buy it? And we have to explain that there is pretty much nothing that comes off the shelf when you're manufacturing. Those rubber feet are from a custom mold that was made, that's made, I think that one might actually be simply out of aluminum, in China where they squirt silicone, where they compress silicone inside these two pieces of metal to get the exact shapes we want. It is not a McM- and it is not apart from McMaster. For keycaps, the way that those are made in volume is you've got two giant hunks of steel that have holes cut into them, and then they spray molten plastic into them uh, under huge amounts of pressure. And it'll cool off relatively quickly inside that tooling, inside those hunks of steel. And when they pop open, you've got these Warm, hot off the presses keycaps.
1: Have you seen this happen? Have you been to the factory where they do yes. Oh,
0: yeah, this? no, I have I the when we were doing the Atreus, which is our last keyboard, I was there the day they were doing the test runs for the the sort of the tray, the bottom part of the keyboard. And I literally was able to grab pieces as they popped out of the injection mold, you know, literally hot off the presses. So,
1: okay, so so okay, so you started with the the board design. You knew you wanted to do an ergo design or a split design, and then then, but also you were using because of that, you were using there weren't keycaps. You couldn't buy off the more, off the shelf keycaps, right?
0: Well, so we when we first got started, we assumed we were going to do what a lot of these uh, ergonomic mechanical keyboards do, which is just have some gaps in the spacing on the key on the keyboard. That's the sort of standard thing. We got told by somebody who has advised one of the largest companies in the world on their ergonomic keyboards, that there was no way we would be able to afford custom tooling for 64 keycaps because that is an investment of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And But we verified that these facts, they were wrong. I later met the person who worked for the large company that made keyboards and said oh yeah that guy i gave him that number because that's what it takes when we giant company are making this tooling and you know we're making six sets of tooling and we're doing like very high volume very fancy tooling in a very fancy factory
1: but but i mean in this case so the tooling is machined out to be like a negative of the keycap and yes. uh, on each side, and so when it mashes together, there's spot, space for the plastic to get shot in, and and yes, I mean this is how injection molding works, right? Right.
0: Yeah. Um, and you know, our our keycap tooling absolutely costs tens of thousands of dollars, but it doesn't cost hundreds of thousands. Oh, I thought dollars. it was way more
1: expensive than that. Holy cow! I'm, I'm going to get in the keycap business, Jesse. Uh, we should talk later.
0: Um, <laughs> uh, Will is shaking head. his head no. Yeah. Uh, so. I was talking about something about the keycap about keycap tooling. Oh, about you know,
1: uh, taking the warm caps off the off the line. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I've actually got a question there. I
2: mean, when when you're first setting up the tooling, when they are popping what I assume are samples out. I mean, how much trial and error, how much iteration is involved there? Do you have to be there for some period of days, like checking iterative samples and like tweaking? Like, okay, this is wrong. This needs to be tweaked. Like, how much?
0: It's a lot uh, nicer when you can. <laughs> uh, which we can't right now. Sure. So, um, the way they describe, they, the way that manufacturers talk about tweaking the tooling as they, as stuff comes off, you know, the, as the samples come out of the, the injection molds, uh, T zero or T one is that first trial. Different people say T zero or T one, depending. And then T two, T three, T four. And Usually, you need like a couple of a couple of tweaks before they get some of the tolerances right. Our factory sh- for the Model 100 uh, last week they showed us the T0 keycaps because we had to completely redo the keycaps uh, f- with the new factory for the new new key switches. Um, the keys, sw- everything fit with the T with the T0 they there were some issues with what are called the runners or the gates that sort of keep the keycaps together as they come out of the mold those they need to improve before they before mass production and they got the homing dots wrong on two of the keycaps they put them the wrong place which is kind of pain but they'll fix it
1: (laughs) yeah well uh, when they fix that do they have to completely remachine the the blocks or can they just Solder stuff back in and kind of.
0: I mean, it, it's weld, not solder, but weld, that is okay. used. I mean, so to if they need to do something where there should be more plastic that that ends up in the final product, that's free. That's they just cut. They just cut more steel right. away. When they need to remove plastic, they need to basically weld something in place. And so what they're going to end up doing is welding a patch and then remachining that little patch and. That can have issues. You can end up with sort of a little part line where where they did the patch. If they don't do it cleanly enough, and we've warned them that if that happens, they're going to have to remachine that entire cavity. Which so, is like they weld a bigger piece in and then they machine it again. It's not yeah, yeah. the end of the world, but it's annoying.
1: So okay, so this is maybe a stupid question, but when you when you take the shot keycaps out for manufacturing, do, are they in a like a like a rigid thing of sprue where you can just. Then the machine picks them up and you can put them on the on the keyboard all at once and smash all the caps in place.
0: So there are some different ways of doing this. Um, you wouldn't usually have so there you can do it that way at a, at a moderately high end, but you may not want to. If, for example, the keycaps need to get painted and laser engraved, you probably want to paint them before you put them on the keyboard. That makes sense. Yeah. And so <laughs> with the with the model one. The factory that did the keycaps had something that would cut them off the sprue as they came out of the out, out of the injection mold, out, as they came out of the machine, and slam them onto a painting jig. And the only problem is that they tried to cheap out on the amount of steel they needed for the tooling, so they put them too close together, so it was impossible to paint all the sides well. So they oh, ended no. up having to then take half them off the painting jig. And then it was... Them, ugh. It was a catastrophe. Yeah. Uh they they had like a 50% spoilage rate in the beginning. It was horrible. With now conveniently the factory that's doing the model 100 with us uh they helped us do the last run of keycaps for the model 1 because the previous factory and we were no longer on speaking terms. <laughs> oh, and so no. they They actually ran into this. They didn't have the really cool transfer tool, uh, you know, transfer vacuum suction thing. And so they were taking the keycaps on the sprue out of the tool by hand, except that sprue was designed to fall off. So the first time they tried to do it, the injection molding machine opens and the keycaps just explode outwards. (laughs) To make it go, they ended up buying foot wide transfer tape. So, like, basically very, very soft masking tape, and using that to pull the keycaps out of the tooling. Wow. Having seen that, they did a really nice job on the design for the Model 100, where the sprue becomes the painting jig. So the keycaps stay on the sprue, it's it's what's called edge gating, so rather than having the the runners or the sprue that hold the keycaps, in, or that allow the plastic to get to the cavities, rather than having that on the sides of the keycaps it's the bottom edge so you won't see like a dot on the side of the keycap oh that's awesome
1: it's 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 a, a thing that i think people don't realize is that like when you design a product like this it's not just designing the product it's also designing the manufacturer for the product and every aspect and like how much every aspect of that has to be thoughtful and and like how much expertise goes into I, all of I that i just
2: i just want to throw in real fast like when you said at the top of this like if you had known how hard it would be you wouldn't have done it and i was just sitting there like ah really was it really that bad and i feel like you've already provided like three or four examples of, of like i've heard things where i was like yeah wow
0: i sure as hell wouldn't do that either oh man this is the easy shit
2: <laughs> <laughs> like, like I'm I'm sitting here thinking about arguing with like the factory that screwed up half of half of your keycaps and like what the resolution that situation might have reached, you know, like it sounds like a lot of trouble.
0: So the very long and short of I mean, we went through with that first keyboard, we went through every manufacturing problem that anybody has ever heard of it. Um, I don't think that we actually ever actually I don't think we ever actually got handed parts that we know to have been counterfeit. But other than that, anytime we, and like we, we had weird problems. We had factories that supposedly closed down for fires. We had things that supposedly got lost. We had suppliers that, you know, obviously didn't deliver the thing they promised untested parts. Um feel like weird work stoppages. And every time we, Dug into one of them. There was enough truth there that it was you know, okay. That that we we see what's going on there. And every time I talked to a professional who'd been doing this for twenty years, they said, "Yeah, that's a thing that really happens." But Jesse, all these problems don't happen to this. No, no, nobody ever has all the problems. <laughs> you, you won the lottery. Um, uh, until finally, we figured out what had been going on. What was the, it? The director of over or the person who was. To this time, to our knowledge, the director of overseas sales of the factory, um, when we found out she was no longer the director of overseas sales, she was a contract salesperson who had one customer, us, Uh, turned out she was a con artist grifter who'd been scamming both sides and embezzling money. She'd been telling us all the reasons why the factory uh, needed to be paid a little bit early and sort of bad mouthing other people at the factory to us. And she'd been explaining to the factory that we were paying a little bit late and we were a little <sighs> bit short wow. because, uh, because we were having a really hard time with sales. So five finger discount. Wow. That's, that's, that's Holy not crap. Good. Like yeah. change bank accounts, the whole thing. And when, you know, and when she changed bank accounts on us, we emailed the factory owner and said, we want to confirm that this is what's going on. And, heard back circuitously that he that yes that was like that was right which he later denied because it of course was not right it was yeah. it, and nobody that we work with in china believed that it was happening because the because nobody does this because the penalties are so stiff this was a, like 10 years to life in a chinese prison kind of thing wow yeah um yeah, and we we wrote about all of this pretty extensively in um in the backer updates for the Model 1. None of this is a a big reveal here. You can read you can you can read all those updates if you want to. We we just compiled them into a PDF that we don't know what we're going to do with. It's a 472-page book.
1: You I was going to say one of the things that I learned when from your kickstarters is that your document like your updates are sp- sp- like there's no mystery as to what's going on with the money that when 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 I back your Kickstarter, I know exactly what's going on with my money and how it's going because like you you all didn't there was no varnishing anything <laughs> at, at any point along the way. It seemed like. I mean, except for the keyboards, of course.
0: Um, yes, the, the keyboard, the keyboards did get a nice polyurethane coat on the, um, on the wood that was mixed with what we were initially told was banana oil, which mm. sounded kind of weird until I started Googling and realized that was not a bad translation, but that is in fact the, um, the name of it actually used to be a shellac that got used on the wings of, uh, canvas aircraft, but it's, uh, it, it helps dilute and, allow, and uh, it helps dilute polyurethane and allows it to penetrate slightly better into the wood. And I discovered one day when we were modifying a keyboard enclosure that the room was filled with the smell of bananas. <laughs> it doesn't come from bananas, but it smells like bananas, as I understand it. Oh, okay, That's, uh, that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Um, okay. So so okay. So you have keycaps. You have a board design. Theoretically, at this point, you're manufacturing a board. I assume that. Like manufacturing boards is fairly straightforward. You'd,
0: you'd think that. Um, so we ran in, I mean, so part of it is component selection. And one, you know, one of the things that you run into pretty, you know, when you're working with the is they have their recommended vendors, you have your preferred vendors and one of the parts that was a little bit harder to get was the Taiwanese LEDs that we'd picked and the factory subbed a Chinese LED, like with our knowledge, subbed a Chinese yeah. LED that was supposed to be compatible. Friends of mine had used it and said, it's better. It's like, it is actually like a, a you know an improved version of the thing that we were gonna use, except on our boards, there was an audible whine, And we sort of discovered this, we proved it. Um, when you add more capacitance to the to the circuit board, it goes away. We had to add approximately one farad of capacitance before it goes away. That would be a um, capacitor about the size of a baby's fist. <laughs> it's a pretty uh, big capacitor. It uh, was, was it was kind of cool because after you unplugged the keyboard from the computer, the LEDs worked for a good twenty seconds. <laughs> uh, but, but the so the factory um, brought in the um, the LED vendor. They brought in their design team, including the engineer who had done the silicon inside the LEDs. And he's like, well, first off, this is the old chip inside there. And we're, um, I didn't know we were actually selling these to anybody anymore. But I think if we did a different wire bond for you and attached da-da-da-da-da-da-da, uh, that might make it go away. And so for an order that was like 200,000 LEDs, these LEDs you know, cost less than a dime each. They were yeah. willing to spin a custom part for us. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it didn't work, but it was amazing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> At least they tried. Yeah. Um, you know, the keyboard PCBs in China are a little weird because they're they're usually pretty big circuit boards compared to a lot of others, and so that usually means they're they are using circuit houses that are older process. So, you know, uh, we showed up with a USB C connector slightly before that was trendy, and other slight you know small traces. And the factory's uh, the factory's normal uh, PCB creation uh, partner sort of looked and was like, "No, we can't do these. We can't hit those tolerances." The first the first batch of keyboards that got assembled, they they were running late, and I was I had delayed my trip home from China, and so they the factory found another supplier that would do the assembly. They came back with LEDs at like a funny angle, diodes that were missing. Uh, but the, like, this is, this was like a small time factory that was just not paying good attention. It's like, you would think that circuit board assembly is commodity and it should be. And now it is like, we, we have much better vendors now. Yeah. You know, we know what to look for.
2: Sure. How much, how much time were, how, how long were each of these trips over there? And then how many times a year were you doing this? I'm just curious, like what footprint on your, on your life and your schedule, these, these trips took.
0: It it varied. Um, I would never really go for less than 10 days because by the time you're there, it's just not worth it to like yeah. go and come back that fast. I was usually going three or four times a year. Um, 10, you know, 10 days at the low end and a month at the high end when we were still trying to figure things out. And so when we were just starting to get ready to do the Atreus with the new factory, I went and planned a 10-day trip to like to work through whatever was gonna were going to be the manufacturing problems. And I get there on a Sunday, go in on Monday morning, and by like Monday at like four, we have knocked off 98% of what needs to happen. Cause it turns out that it's not that you need to spend a month in the factory. It's that you need to spend time in the factory without the person who's working, who's supposed to be your advocate, actively sabotaging you. <laughs> Oh, no, it's it's been, you know, it was fascinating to sort of discover that it doesn't have to be that painful. The, you know, I have not been back to China since what is, I, I think. It, I can't remember if it was December 2019 or the first week of January 2020, um, but just essentially just before no one was going to travel anymore.
1: Yeah, I was I was going to say because the Atreus was like
0: manufacturing started right before the pandemic is that right? Oh no. no. No, no, no. We did the Kickstarter uh for a so the Atrius is an ultra portable 44 key 44 key keyboard that is perfect to take with you everywhere. We launched the campaign in the middle of March of 2020. Oh god,
1: okay. That's right cuz I talked to you about it when I saw you in Chicago in January, I bet.
0: Yeah. No, we um, like we launched right around when the stay at home orders dropped. But 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 so at that point had you done all the pre-production and stuff? Uh, on the keyboard? So that for the Atreus, we had I had approved so I had approved most of the plastics. we um we thought we'd approved the uh the key plates. We knew we hadn't figured out the keycap labeling solution yet because we wanted black PBT keycaps with white letters, which turns out to be hard. Um go figure. Um no the factory didn't know either. But and but like the the circuit boards were were basically sorted out, and we delivered the early delivery keyboards pretty much on time, and we delivered the regular keyboards about two to three weeks late because even though we'd taken COVID craziness into account, we had not taken it. Enough into account. I
1: think I think you did like if you shipped within a month of your target. I think you did pretty well (laughs) given how how given that we large portions of the country couldn't get toilet paper mid April last year. So yeah,
0: we we like we're we're happy with with how we did. Um, Shipping was a nightmare for sure um, because most of the cheap carriers, the way they work is that they buy uh, cargo space on commercial flights. And when there are no commercial flights, they don't ship. So one of the cheapest options was uh, Singapore Post's uh, queue something or other service. We had stuff that would get out of Hong Kong within 24 hours, get scanned in in Singapore, and then sit for six plus weeks before it moved onward from Singapore.
1: Wow. Um, so, okay, so... How has pandemic stuff affected the new keyboard? I mean, the, actually tell me a little bit about the new keyboard. We we should talk about that while we're sure. while, while we're so, in the Yeah.
0: Yeah, the new keyboard is the Keyboardio Model 100. Um if it's not in the show notes and somebody wants to find it if they go to shop.keyboard.io, right now the, you know, the top hero image is a is a link to the Kickstarter. And later the top hero image will sell you something whenever you're <laughs> listening to this. All right, that that's enough commercial spiel for me. So um, we had intended to do this keyboard last year. I think we'd intended to do it the year before that, but everything goes slower in a pandemic. Um, so it's an updated version of the of the Model 1. It is the same butterfly shape. The plan is now that instead of everybody have it, getting it in maple, you get it in your choice of maple or walnut. And there's a fun supply chain issue we can talk about there. Um, <laughs> we switched from uh, Matthias Alps switches to hot swappable MX style switches from Kaiwa. We we're redoing the LEDs and we are in the process of trying to swap out the main microcontroller from uh, an AVR, the same thing that's in an Arduino Leonardo, to a fancy Cortex M4 with uh, looks like it's going to be a mega flash and 96k of RAM. Instead of wow. uh, yeah, instead yeah, instead of thirty two k of flash and two and a half k of RAM, and it's going to be cheaper for us to make it that way. Well, that's like win win win. Oh yeah, um, I mean the only thing is that there is not a an Arduino core for this chip right now, so that's what we're doing to make sure it works. <laughs> okay. Um, also, we're in the middle of the chipocalypse.
1: Yeah. So explain the chipocalypse. We we hear. Look, we've spent a lot of time in the last year talking about hardware shortages, whether it's not being able to get video cards or or consoles like at the high end consumer side. Like you have a better idea of why that's actually happening, I think, than we do.
0: I, I certainly hear I, I hear sets of stories um, and I have not really paid attention to the early side of it because I am I am much more in the weeds of how do I get my damn chips? Because what we're seeing right now, I mean, things that ordinarily have a six to eight week or maybe a 13 week lead time, people are talking about 56 and 64 week lead times. Wow. So, oh yeah, no, a friend of mine got quoted as 62 week lead time for a diode last month. Wow. It is clearly a very special diode, but more than a year.
1: It's five years. Oh, no, 62 no. weeks. 62 weeks. 62 some weeks, some sorry, sorry, not 62 sorry, sorry, months. months. It's like five years. What the <laughs> hell?
0: no. Um, That's still in, in, intense. But like chip, you know, you know and, and if you can get the chips, the prices are through the roof. Chips that, you know, a chip that used to cost a buck, something might cost four or a chip that costs three costs 12. Uh, and, and these so are commodity
2: parts, I'm assuming? Like These no, are commodity. Nothing, nothing,
0: nothing unusual, right? Not no, the, 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 the If something's really exotic, you're probably okay. So nobody's <laughs> using not it. as much demand, uh, right? I've heard I've heard unsourced reports um, of uh adversarial hoarding. Okay. Given how ha- given how bad availability is right now, I've heard some reports of people buying up rare chips that they know their competitors need just to corner the market.
1: Well, so I was gonna say I heard I heard from a friend who shall remain nameless but works in, in the space that, that they've, they've had, they've suspected that that's happening for things like specific diodes and MOSFETs and stuff like that. And, and that it's to the point that they're wondering if there are vendors that are literally studying what's available and gobbling up availability specifically to, to, to cause problems for, for their competitors, which I, I, I I wouldn't doubt that at this point, but
0: yeah, yeah, that's bonkers. Um. It's crazy. Like we've, we're in the process of attempting to pre-buy all the chips that all of the chips that we believe are supply constrained that we're going to need for the model 100. We at least still have the capability to redesign if we can't get something we need. Are you going to, are yeah. you
1: going to literally look at your design? Like you, the, in this case, your design is going to be informed, not just by the design and what's the cheapest, best parts your know, best bang for the buck, but you're also going to have to redesign based on what LEDs you can get, what diodes you can get all that.
0: That's incredible. So the LEDs and diodes are a little bit more commodity and those don't appear to be the things that at the scale we work are re are really a problem right now. Um, not compared to ICs. Okay. So like the one that I'm, integrated I'm cur- circuits for yeah, people. So yeah. like the chips, yeah. the actual chips, um, what get called jelly beans, like this, you know, it doesn't really matter who you get them from, like the the diodes and the resistors and the capacitors, that stuff doesn't seem to be as bad right now. But like the controller for our LEDs, the chip we use to let the two halves of the Model 100 talk to each other, um, that seems to be through the roof and to have some availability issues. And so I'm waiting for this quotation from our factory for what their vendors have told them is available. Wow. Uh, so it's a what's called it's a differential I squared C transceiver. So it's it takes a signal that is usually on two wires and runs it over two pairs of wires for the interconnect between the two hands to allow it to run over greater distances and to be more immune to noise. One of our competitors doesn't do this, and if you put your cell phone in the middle of their keyboard and it <laughs> rings, uh, you lose the right half of the keyboard. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> um, but i approached one of our vendors about you know do you have something on your on your rate card or on your line card from somebody you represent that would let me that i could replace this chip with and they got back to me today saying well there's this fpga vendor in china we work with who would be willing to do the custom firmware in house and we could just replace this chip with an F, a custom programmed fpga
1: that's that's that's, inc- uh, that's ridiculous on and it's side. price competitive
2: Wow. wow. Oh, I thought I was waiting for the part where you said it was going to cost like 50 times as much.
0: <laughs> no, it's going to co- So it's going to cost, I want to say, like 10 percent more than it would have cost in okay. a normal year. Wow. Wow. And wow. It, but that that falls like. um that may run afoul of Sigalski's law. Um, if you know Maciej, who runs Pinboard, um, he has this famous saying about technology: If I'm excited about it, it doesn't belong in production. <laughs> sure. um, and like a novel firmware on an FPGA to replace a chip, we're ship. We're pl- We're trying to ship uh, early delivery units in November and mass production in January. Ah, I'm willing to pay a little bit more money right now to have something stable.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's like keyboard's not a place that I want to have a lot of experimentation. Like I want yeah. the the areas where the experimentation happens to be well defined and established, uh, and and not be yeah. surprises. Although I mean, the, it does seem like it would be cool to run like an eighty eighty eight simulator on a on a on a on your FPGA in the keyboard.
0: We we actually have a friend, Piotr um, Ezdin who's who's uh, he's one bit squared. Is his company? They start off making a like little little. Arduino programmable UAVs, and he's doing a lot of open source FPGA work. He just did a version of our Atreus that fit that is compatible with our plate and our enclosure that is entirely built in an FPGA. <laughs> and so it's like it's super cool, it's super efficient. I'm personally still unconvinced that it is worth doing for most people, but it's real cool. I mean, look, if we
1: were Everything starts, it turns out, with with you wanting to make something cool oh, yeah. for yourself, right?
0: Absolutely. Like and like he makes FPGA stuff. Being able to use the FPGA stuff for real uses makes tons of sense.
1: Well, I mean, it's it's like the old, yeah, if, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything starts looking like a nail. If you know once you know how to program FPGAs, everything looks like it's an <laughs> FPGA problem. Right. So, so
0: yeah. So if your listeners aren't familiar with FPGAs, they basically let you do hardware and software.
1: So, yeah, you can reprogram a chip on the fly to to be any perform. other chip that will yeah. fit into the logic gates, right?
0: Yeah. So, like, you can now get a RISC-V, an open source RISC-V CPU core for an FPGA.
1: We, uh, we've talked yeah. a lot about FPGA applications here in the past. We haven't oh, talked about it. Awesome. FP- yeah, we, do we big big Mr. Cool. Fans around here if you're
2: familiar yeah. with that project. <laughs>
1: um, so, okay. So, the keyboard's in process. The Kickstarter has, like, a week left. Um, yeah like how you you have new factories online you don't have the bad actor in between you and the and the people doing the work Can I, the, I I'm sorry if I I don't know. maybe we shouldn't
2: delve into this particular rabbit hole did this person do you know what their ultimate fate was
0: did <laughs> they end up in prison um maybe we shouldn't talk we, about it um so I want to. I will be slightly circumspect, but okay. what I will say is that um, we have a very good, lawyer, a very good Chinese lawyer in China. Um, she ended up convincing the factory to take responsibility for the actions of, the, of their then former salesperson, uh, and they did end up reneging on the on those commitments that they had made in writing with the Chinese contract, and so we ended up having to pursue them by the uh, through the Chinese legal system. Uh, The Chinese legal system did work on our behalf and a judge ordered them to return our tooling um, and to return product they had made for us that we had paid for. They did not return our time. They did not return our money. Um, But we ended up agreeing with our lawyer's estimation that it made more sense to go after the factory than to go after their salesperson.
1: I mean, yeah, the sale, yeah, that makes, that makes sense. Um, this is still a horrific
0: first, for, for the first, first,
1: first product out course, there. I
0: mean, nowhere to go but up from there. Yeah. Right? What a
1: way to start, Jesse. Yeah.
0: No, it was, uh, it was quite an experience, but, um, how about, uh, can we talk about
1: RGB a little bit? Cause like this yeah, is a thing, sure. that's, it, it's become popular over the, over the recent years. Um, how much complication does that add to the design and and how, I mean, there's different scales of, of, of lights on a keyboard, right? There's, hey, we have fixed color lights underneath the keys. That's pretty straightforward. We have RGB lights that we can program when you write firmware to the keyboard, which is more complicated, but still reasonably reasonably straightforward and then we have like crazy gaming keyboards where the when you fire up Overwatch and you switch characters the layout the lighting layout changes to match the the keys that you use for that for that particular character and and yes. I'm curious like what the difficulty curve is on your side for for the different layers there
0: so there there's one there's one in the middle that that you uh, that you may not have been aware of and I'll go through that so single color LEDs um, especially if you don't need to toggle them on and off individually, very easy. Mm-hmm. By the time you need to toggle them on, by the time you want to be able to control them, control each one, that means you need some kind of LED driver or to have LEDs that have a smart driver inside them, like a what Adafruit sells as NeoPixels or Dot Stars. Got it. And so those are very popular in the hobbyist world because. The board layout is very simple. You basically have a chain of uh, you have a a strip or a chain of LEDs.
1: These are and the ones where you load up the packet with the commands for all the LEDs, and each one chunks off one one command and passes it on. The yes, next one.
0: exactly. It's yeah. you you know you basically spew it. Every you know each LED gets three or four bytes of information, and then yeah cuts the head off, cuts the head off the data and passes the rest onward Th- and they so that is a lot
1: of heat though and use a lot of power right
0: uh they were designed for architectural use they i mean you can get them in different form factors now that have you know different power profiles but yeah we we used those in the mo- in the model 1 and we programmatically limited it and physically limited it to being able to draw 1.6 amps which is about what you can expect out of a a laptop that's willing to give you a lot of power out of a USB port. Okay. The USB spec says you're only supposed to ask for half an amp traditionally. Um, 1.6 is what a MacBook or a ThinkPad will give you before it starts to wonder if something is shorting out. <laughs> if we drove the 64 LEDs in the Model 1 at full brightness with no limit, we would be looking at pulling four amps of power. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so for the model 100 what we're doing is using dumb LEDs like our you know they have an r pixel a G pixel and a B pixel a red a green and a blue and the pins are a current source and then syncs for those three pixels and so you need to have a separate external controller and so we can get the same kind of brightness that we got out of the model one but but with less than a third of the power they do require a driver chip of some kind. And so that we then talk to over I squared. Uh, actually, that's, that might be, uh, I don't, I don't remember what we talked to it over, but it's basically we, it we program it directly and it then deals with lighting up the right pixels. So it's a little more complicated to lay out the, it is harder to do as a hobbyist because you have a bunch more fine pitch pins. It's not dramatically more complicated, but it is a little it is a little bit harder to write to. Does it make the board? Do you have to do more more layers on the board or anything like that? Or is it no still- we 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 still only do two layer boards. Okay. Um, we did have we once had a manufacturing engineer at a large at a large consumer electronics company look at our board and say. You know, you could make these one-layer boards with some uh, with some carbon trace printing on the other side. It would save you ten percent. How much? How much are they going to be if we don't do that? A buck. Um, (laughs) And it's like, but that, but that is kind of the like that's a specialist technique that doesn't it doesn't make any sense at our volume. Yeah, yeah. But no, I like I've I've still only ever designed two-layer boards, so. Because chips are starting to get scarce, I did ask our factory what they, you know, what microcontrollers they're using for their keyboards, for you know, or their clients using for their fancy keyboards, and they handed me a Chinese data sheet for something that speaks, you know, USB HID profiles on one end, and actually has key matrix scanning. And uh, built into the same chip, and also has LED matrix uh, driving with a dozen optional LED effects burned in, burned in to the ROM. You know, you don't you don't get to choose which LED effects <laughs> you get past which one of these you you want to you know enable. You can have the waterfall or the rainbow. Okay. Yeah, I mean you can have the rainbow left and right. I think you might be able to change the speed of the rainbow. Okay. Um, but you know the things we want are you know the ability for users to write their own led effects or to be able to drive the led effects over a serial protocol which is a you know a thing that we and most other hackers firmers offer these days the gaming companies are getting a little more open with their protocols but it is all still around like here Yes, this is how you write to our protocol so that you can drive our keyboards.
1: But well, yeah, it's it's I, a co-marketing money thing a lot of times. So they they the it turns out the Razer people only want the Razer k- keyboards to work with the Razer thing that they paid to develop anyway.
0: Yes, no, we we actually talked to them very early on about whether we could get access to Razer switches. They they had us sign some some agreements, and then they just kind of ghosted. <laughs> but that that was a long long time ago. Yeah. Um,
1: but, but but so yeah. the upshot is the but but now you have serial communications so that you can control the lights dynamically using your software or or something yeah.
0: Some, yeah um control you know control the lights um change the layout on the fly um do other crazy things you want to do um
1: i always wonder like i'm i'm the worst in the world about layout changes on keyboards i just use one layout no matter what because my brain is not plastic enough to change layouts on the fly anymore um but and just to see, so what we're talking about we're talking about changing layouts is for example on the atreus if you want to use a numpad then you can go down a layer and the right hand side of the keyboard will be a numpad at that point
0: it's it's like you can, can you can write your own function key that changes the behavior of any of the other keys. So you can write your own shift key, or you can write macros, or you can make a key that is sticky when you double tap it, or you know you can uh, uh, write a key that that will strafe in your in your game, but okay. do it with enough randomness uh, that the. Anti-cheating protections don't kick in.
1: No, no, no. We, we don't like those. those we do mad. not
0: recommend. We do not recommend <laughs> this, uh, and we and we believe it to be somewhat immoral. But we know that there are a lot of folks out there who are immoral. But great also power,
1: great responsibility. But yeah, but also like some people, some people have different uh, keyboard layouts for when they're writing. If they write a lot of code, if they're writing JavaScript or something, then they'll have a JavaScript layout that puts the the keys that are constantly that you constantly hit when you're writing JavaScript place where they're easily accessible and they'll switch back to a more standard QWERTY, like when they're, when they're doing word writing and stuff like that. So yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a, it is a power user feature for power users. I would
0: absolutely. I would say. Or, you know, or you, you know, you learn to type in Dvorak or you, um, you know, one of the, one of the power user things that's, I've never managed to wrap my brain around, but some people absolutely love is putting your numbers on the home row. Oh, Huh. So like, you don't okay. have to reach, you just, you sure. do something with your, you know, with your thumb. Um, wow. No. One, one of the actual useful things that we did with this super programmability for a customer who had a uh, decorvain syndrome and it had a uh, hand surgery is he wrote to us and he was like, what do you recommend while I can only use my left hand and I've got to get work done. And so we implemented Ed, Edgar Matisse's uh, half QWERTY using the model one's palm, uh, palm key where when you drop your palm onto that other button, it makes the keyboard a mirror of what the other hand would be.
1: I, I was going to say I have I one of my one of my friends in college was had one had one 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 hand, and he did the same thing with a I don't know if you remember but remember those keyboards a that you put your fingers yeah in the in the holes and
0: oh a data yeah. hand a data yeah, a
1: data hands yeah exactly yeah I've
0: got one of those back there
1: oh I know I know I know about you and the keyboards Jesse um,
0: I think Marchine has more keyboards than me now
1: look Marchine's writing a book he should have more. we we still need to have Marchine on the show to talk you about you should have Marchine on the show absolutely words.
0: um
1: i think i mean i feel like like we we've kind of glossed over a lot of stuff here it's really complicated um <laughs> this is the druma- most uh, probably the biggest understatement i've ever made on on the show to date um but i don't know Brad what, what do you do you feel like we haven't talked about lumber at all, which is. Oh, yeah. Like you, you make you do a, a gorgeous wooden case for these keyboards. Yeah. And I know it has to be just like an absolute boondoggle um, from a manufacturing standpoint. But I, I'm so happy that you do them. Uh,
0: so, yeah. So the first time around, uh, when we spec this on Kickstarter, when we didn't really know how many we were going to make, we, you know, we do care about not doing horrible things to the world, and we specced Canadian maple, which basically grows like a weed. And then we ended up manufacturing in Southern China. And so when you mill a keyboard enclosure out of Canadian maple in Southern China, it has to be shipped from North America. So you're shipping both ways now? Shipping both ways. Um, And then for for the Model 100, we're giving folks the choice of maple or walnut. And we hit up our wood vendor to get a quote just before the campaign to make sure we knew what our numbers looked like. And he warned us that, yes, prices have gone up, but also right now, they can't get solid boards in maple or walnut that are wide enough because their their importer's supply of maple and walnut boards is sitting on the docks at Origin now because of the global container shortage, Right, which... I'm not 100% sure I believe, because there's still plenty of stuff being shipped out from China, and so going back to China shouldn't be too bad. I asked them if they could tell us where the walnut was coming from so I could try and understand what's going on. And they sent, and so they sent us a bill of lading from the last order. So that walnut is being uh, being felled in Kentucky, and as far as I can tell, is sitting on the docks in Virginia Beach. Wow. Waiting to go to China. and Wow, that's the
1: long way around, I guess.
0: <laughs> I, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, I had kind of assumed, you know, it's coming out of Port of Oakland or Port of LA or something like that. But nope. Um, they're, so, they're working it through for us. Okay. They offered us joined walnut and they did some samples, you know, like, well, uh, basically like butcher block style. Yeah. And I said, no, our customers won't take that. And they said, let us, let's make some samples and then we can see if it looks good. And three nights ago, I got a WeChat message from our wood guy with a series of six photos in rapid succession and then two giant uh, crying emoji. And I'm (laughs) like, yeah, that's not going to work. He's like there's a reason I sent you pictures and didn't and didn't FedEx it as soon as I saw it I knew it wasn't going to work. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I mean, at least you have a partner there that's that like knows what you're looking for and stuff like that at this point, right?
0: Yeah. Um, we've got a bunch of partners and suppliers who I trust to be operating in their own interests and transparent with me about it. It's so so when you're manufacturing,
1: so so you so you collect all the parts, you know what's going to go into this you send them all to one factory and then the line fires up when everything arrives? Is that how it works? Uh, so,
0: so that's called consignment. And so that would be like where, and th- there are some Western companies that do it this way. They don't want the factory to be able to, you know, run a ghost shift and make more of their thing. Okay. Uh, honestly, for the, for anything at the complexity level we're making, if somebody wanted, if somebody in China wanted to clone our product, what they'd have to do is buy one. Okay. And... I I do actually believe that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Um, somebody who's going to clone our product isn't going to clone what makes them what makes them good they're going to clone what they look like And so in general we would rather allow our fac- allow our factory to be on the hook for sourcing most of what we need. There's some things where we do consign them so the wood, because keyboard factories don't know much about wood, we do can we we typically consign the wood though we don't we allow them or we we beg or the vendors to work directly together to do the uh to make sure things get to the right place and to deal with uh, problems with parts and schedules and things like that. The travel cases we sourced on our own because we did them at a time when we weren't really working directly with the factory the. Our Chinese PM is currently working. Is has a vendor he really likes for packaging, and so he is going to have us consign our packaging to the to the factory. Even though our factory's packaging folks are just fine, um, I'm trying to think what else we consign. Not much. Like so, I would. So th- this is what gets called. It's more what gets called contract manufacturing.
1: So you just where, say, Hey, here are the parts. We need these parts and we need them here. You guys deal with all this side of it. And we, we just want to see the finished product. Basically.
0: We need parts that meet these specs. Sometimes there's uh, so sometimes we will appoint a specific manufacturer or supplier we will say, you can buy these parts, but you have to buy them from this person. Okay. Um, when we can sign parts, the, they show up on the bill of materials outside the, uh, the line item where they where the factory has added their profit, the factory, like, sh- you know, a good bill of materials from a factory should show you what they're paying for each thing and then what their markup is, mm-hmm. like what profit they're taking on everything. And they don't, they don't generally, they're not generally supposed to be adding that markup if you are for, I mean, they can't do it if you're, if you're paying for the parts.
1: I mean, that makes sense. Yeah.
0: It makes tons of sense. Yeah. Um, but, like our old factory or old salesperson tried very hard to to scuttle any time that we were going to um, yeah
1: yeah. so so is anything is there anything that's been easier this go round than it was with the Atreus or with the model one? I mean, it seems like everything has been you you've learned something every time. it sounds like
0: it's I mean, it's so a lot of it is I mean, the actual flow is a lot easier than with the model one because we already have a factory that we know and trust and who actually took custody of the model one tooling. So we didn't have to start totally from scratch. We could mod; They modified some of the tooling rather than st- making it from the, from the beginning. Mm-hmm. A lot of the aspects of the design are already constrained. Um, we're, you know, we're setting ourselves up a little bit of difficulty switching to from an AVR to a cortex M4 that we need to write code for, but that's just code. Mm-hmm. Uh, the supply chain stuff is absolutely bonkers this time. You know, getting parts was not a problem in in, you know, previous iterations The before times. Yeah, the before times, um, hopefully the future times. But that that may like everything we're hearing is that this is going to run another year. I
1: mean, that the thing that the apocalypse, the, the, the thing that I've always heard is that it's always easier to turn stuff off than on. And that when you turn things back on again, you can expect to anywhere from 24 to, to 48 months of disruption depending on how deep up the, the line, the disruption started. Um, so, so, okay. So, you, but once, but they don't start manufacturing until everything's there, obviously, because once the line's going, you don't want to stop the line.
0: So with small, with smaller production runs, it's like, it's a little different. They like, okay. they may, cause our entire, they'll do a pilot run, which is probably going to be about a hundred units. It's a, it's what we, what we sold on Kickstarter is the early delivery units. Mm-hmm. And so based on that, They'll then you know we may make some small changes they will refine the assembly process and then when they do mass production they would obviously rather do you know have everything come in three days before they start man- they start doing final assembly okay in reality some stuff may show up much earlier and stuff may accrete like especially you know we're we're right now talking about buying chips six months. Five months before we would be using them. Yeah. Which in previous in the you know, in the before times was unheard of.
1: But now uh, it seems to like it makes good sense because of
0: the Chipotle. All of the, yeah, you know, all of the electrical designers who do small, you know, who do small electronics that I talked to, and actually folks who work for a fruit company in Cupertino who I, who I've talked to have basically been saying, yeah, no, we've been pre-buying a year's worth of electronics. Yeah. And so, you know, the a lot of it they can do pretty quickly because our our assembly factory their specialty is both assembly and injection molding, so they'll they can just kind of kick that out relatively quickly once everything is signed off on.
1: So so what happens once the Kickstarter is done, uh, Jesse? Will you continue? Are you going to continue making the model model one hundred, or is it going to be like is this is it going to be an ongoing production of this, or is this something that you're going to do in batches or TBD? Our-
0: Our goal is to have products in stock for people to buy. We are a small company, and we have a very weird business model. We sell products to consumers for uh, cash money, for fiat currency, for more than it costs us to make them. Wow, that's fascinating. Radically innovative. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Should patent that business model.
1: Your user acquisition process is just to make something good that people want to spend money on?
0: Our user acquisition processes primarily make something so good that people want to spend money on it and tell their friends about how much they love it. Mm. Um, we do. We have been flirting with small amounts of advertising, but it is nowhere near as good as our uh, word of mouth conversion.
1: Beautiful. Uh, yeah. Brad, You got anything else? I think I'm.
2: I think I'm probably uh, wrapped up. I think you kind of touched on this a minute ago. The only question I had from like practically the beginning of the episode was, um, you talked about like somebody hitting you up for the foot on a keyboard that they want a replacement for, and you're like, you know, we can't just. We don't just have a bin of those, you know. You they were made special out of a mold. We should have had a bin. Ah. <laughs> Hindsight is 2020. 20. But the question I have is like, so you you set up your custom production lines, you the molds are made. If you're not making, you know, if those lines are not running forever, obviously they're gonna get dismantled and other products will be made in their place. But do you keep those molds? Do they get mothballed so you could make more of those products in the future if you needed to, or does those get broken down and reused? Or
0: oh yeah. Um the factory is supposed. To, I mean, we own them, and they're in okay. the factory's custody. And the factory is supposed to maintain them in working order for us. Okay. And so, for the Atreus, we've actually done a couple of production runs. And so, when we want more, they mount them. You know, they uh, they have a giant chain lift running. You know, running through the warehouse, and they attach a chain to a uh, to the tool that they want, and they hoist it up and bring it over to the mold and slam it in place, and then they make more and the usual guidance that we get is that they really don't want to put the tooling on the mold for less than a day. And so that's probably like at least a thou, you know at least 1000 shots.
1: So th- so basically that that timing is what determines how your minimum order
0: for theoretically at least it, well either your minimum order or the minimum cost for your order. Got like, it. Like they'll they'll make me one but they're not going to be happy about it and they're going to charge me as if they made me hundreds. Okay, got it. So they may as well make me the hundreds. <laughs> yeah. Makes sense.
1: Um cool. I I mean this is this has been fabulous Jesse. Thank you thank you so so much. If people want to find out about the model 100 or keyboardio, what's the best place for them to go?
0: Um shop.keyboard.io certainly works. We are at keyboardio on Twitter. Um we are not very good at Facebook and uh we are too old to be any good at all at TikTok.
1: Oh, I I feel like I look I would watch some injection molding TikToks all day long. I'm not going to tap to market.
0: We absolutely should I mean so what's I mean what's funny is like uh one of our vendors saw our video on Douyin, the Chinese version of TikTok. Like there is a it looks like a Chinese company that will proxy Kickstarter back for you. Like it was our video with with some content overlaid on top of it.
1: Oh wow! For like for like,
0: back, they were then back gonna, this Kickstarter,
1: and oh. they were wow. That's fascinating.
0: Uh, we've seen that in Japan too. Like it, we've seen companies in Japan listing our our product as something they can sell and then ordering them. Uh, we also about three times a day get spam from Japanese vendors that want to be our representatives in Japan or to run a crowdfunding campaign for us in Japan. And they are, the emails are very clearly templated. They are all derivatives of the same template. Um, It's like, hello, my name is, I am the president of blank. One of them started with, hello, my name is administrator. (laughs) Okay. Um, But like, I don't know what the deal is. Yeah, like, but it really is like three of these a day. Wow.
1: Um, it's fascinating. Well, thank you. Thank you so, so much, Jesse. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank, uh, thank you. Like
2: manufacturing is such a black box for people who for basically everybody <laughs> who doesn't work in it. So like getting this kind of insight into that world and what it takes to actually get it done is really fascinating.
0: Thank you. It's fun to chat.
1: Brad, it's the time of the show where we thank our patrons. Thank you, patrons. Thank you, patrons. Uh, as always, we appreciate all of you. Everybody who listens, we appreciate. Yeah. We especially, especially appreciate the patrons who help support the show financially because we are 100% listener supported. There's no ads, there's no sponsors, no, there's no, there's no big money rolling in here to no. like to to influence us. Grassroots. Yes, we we are from the people. Um, and if you would like to help support the show, you can by going to Patreon.com/slash TechPod. That's Patreon.com slash Did you know I was told that if you want to uh, have people remember something, you say it three times, Brad? Three times? Three times. Here, so I, was like I,
2: thinking, I was thinking like twice, was like, man, he's really going for it
1: here. The media training people said three <laughs> times, which is why I'm going to say it again. Patreon.com slash You can get access to the fabulous TechPod pod Discord uh, where we have great conversations pretty much every day. About everything. Topics, topics of note. Under the sun. Yes. Today, I talked about. Well, I can't talk about that on the podcast. <laughs> Boy, what is being discussed in there? Well, look, we had a tech pod, an after dark tech pod conversation. Mm. We did talk about the prophecy did come true, though, last oh, week.
2: What's the problem? Did you prophecy? know?
1: Do you know what January 21st is every year? Um, Hang on. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think. I do not. It's International Sweatpants Tech Pod Day. Oh, Brad. Wow. Yeah.
2: We've only so, got. What's it? Five, five, six months to go.
1: <laughs> We're not going to be in Trolls 2, unfortunately, no, but yeah, we do have International Swipe Bands Day. So that's, that's fantastic. Mission accomplished. Um, this is the no, this is not the last episode of the month. This is this is the last episode of the month. <laughs> ah, close enough. <laughs> we'll do emails next week. But we have to thank we have to thank a lot more patrons as a result of that. So uh, as always, thank you to our executive producer, tier patrons, Andrew Slowski, David Allen, Jacob Chapel, James Kammack. Joel Krauska, The Bunny Fiend, and Twinkle Twinkie. But also, once a month, we thank our associate producer-level patrons, Alejandro Navarro, uh, Andre Burke, Arthur Gies, Brad Van Orman, Brian Rabe, Dan Brockman, Dave Yulian, David Fan, Donato Sinoco III. I'm a third, too, you know, Brad. I didn't know that. Graham Banks, Jacob Wilson, Jad Rita, Jason Neeland, Jay Maybe, Jorge Pereira, Josh Klein, Julian. Uh, Sanchik Kumar, Terry Cox, Thomas Shea, and Wedge. Thank you all so much. We appreciate Thank you. it so much. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Thank you so much. And I'm very excited. Yes. Well, a little piece of business, a point of order here. Yes. I've been saying for the last four months, five months that we should do this and we've never done it. What is
1: is the, the, well, yes, here we go.
2: Emails next week. Send in your emails. We always forget to solicit emails On the prior show to the email show.
1: Absolutely. Yes. So what's the, how do you send an email into the podcast, Brad? Is it techpod at content.town? That is correct. It is techpod at content.town. Wait,
2: what's that address one more time? Techpod at, I cannot believe they made a top level domain called
1: .town, but they did it. It is techpod at content.town. Uh, so, again, if you want to support the Patreon, it's patreon.com slash tech We appreciate it so much. And the email address is techpod at content uh, You if you're in the discord, if you're already a patron, you can just go into the Q&A section into the channel that is labeled questions seeking answers That's right. where you can scream into the void. You post a question, it disappears after a moment. Drop them in there; nobody but us will ever see it. Yeah, it's well. Also, people who are in the channel at that exact same moment will see it briefly, but then it'll go away. That's a minor loophole. We don't talk about that. Look, I just I don't want people to put any like confessions that are going to be actionable. Mm -hmm. You know, we have mandatory reporters in there. (laughs) Anyway, uh, we will see you all next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a wonderful weekend. Uh, Thanks again to Jesse for being on the show. I thought that was I learned a lot about manufacturing today. And uh, same, absolutely. I knew it was complicated, but I don't think I knew it was going to be that complicated. That was a
2: lot. I don't think I will try to make any keyboards anytime soon, or maybe anything else ever.
1: I want to shoot some caps, man. I want to. Mm. I, want to I want to feel those fresh keycaps right off the right off hey, the injection molds. What you, what you do on your own time is your business. See you all next week. Bye, everybody.